Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, April 5th, 2021. On the show today, news, listener questions, and in the finale of Jim's series on the history of Tower of Terror, Jim explains how Rod Serling and the Twilight Zone ended up as the theme of the Tower of Terror attraction at Disney's Hollywood Studios. Let's get started by bringing in the man who, when asked during a job interview where he saw himself in five years, said, I think my biggest weakness is listening. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? As I recall the, the, the exact quote, I, I'm sorry, you were saying something? What? <laughs> my, my wife says they don't listen or something like there that. You go. And, and more to the point, they never want the real answer for where do you see yourself in five years. It's like older, fatter, grayer. I saw this uh, meme last year during the pandemic who said, nobody who answered the question, where do you see yourself in five years in 2015, got this right. <laughs> oh, no doubt. No doubt. So. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, MJC Jr. FL77, Northwest Nicole, WB Fox 234, that's your station for news, Daedarus Art, Chris Silcock, and Sabres91, and longtime subscribers, Danielson05, JBeck93, Keith Schrod, Detro, Bowling Bethany, and JHeman77. Jim, these are the folks who inspired the downhill double dipper water slide at Disney's Blizzard Beach when they bought a two scoop ice cream cone, tripped, and slid down Summit Plummet. True story. Well, it is a long walk to the top. You know, bringing <laughs> some sort of as far as water, food, yeah, it makes sense, but. It totally does. Okay. Totally does. All right, Jim, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish Podcast. Or a worry-free travel experience every time. Book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, big news out of Walt Disney World, and it's something we all expected. Epcot Food and Wine Festival dates have been announced, and just like last year, it starts about a week after the end of Flower and Garden, so it runs July 15th through November 20th, 2021. No surprises there, right, Jim? No, not at all. Were you the one making the joke to the effect of they're just going to move to a generic set of signing where they can just pull the flower and garden off and just put food and wine right on top? It'll be like one of those rotating signs like you used to see at airports. There you like go. it would just it'd change. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I actually, we were joking about this on our uh, on the touring plans team Slack, and mm-hmm. it was uh, we're going to do a website that says "Is Epcot having a festival?" dot com, <laughs> and the answer would always be yes. It's just a simple page with the word yes. Epcot's having a festival. <laughs> That's exactly how they intended the internet to be used. <laughs> That's exactly what yeah. it is. Um, some other stuff coming out of uh, World Park Hours are extended for the second half of April. And for this, we thank our friends over at WDWMagic.com for catching this. So the Magic Kingdom hours were increased by one, moving to an 8 a.m. opening. So now it runs, the official hours are 8 a.m. to 9 p.m. But with early opening, you know, the park's open a little bit early. Mm. It's right around 14 hours a day for the Magic Kingdom. And I'm going somewhere with this, so be patient here while I do the numbers. Okay. Epcot is running now 11 to 11. So with early opening, 12 hours, give or take. That's about the same as 2019. Mm-hmm. Disney's Hollywood Studios is a 9 a.m. opening and an 8 p.m. close. But of course, the studios is opening about an hour early, so it's really more like 8 to 8, mm-hmm. which is 12 hours. Animal Kingdom now has an 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. close. That's almost exactly the same with early opening as it was in 2019. So Animal Kingdom, Studios, and Epcot are running in April almost exactly the same hours, at least for the the weekends that we looked, Mm -hmm. as they were in 2019. Magic Kingdom in 2019 was open 15 hours. It's 14 now, so pretty close. Mm -hmm. But um, but again, we're moving moving back towards schedules that we haven't seen in a couple of years. Okay. Okay. When you were in the park, we talked on the last show about them creeping in queues from six feet to three feet. Was there any evidence of that in this past week? Or I didn't see that. So the markers are still there at six feet. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that we've started to see is the very beginnings of relaxation of some of those rules. Mm-hmm. So apparently it's okay to drink water in line now as long as you're stationary. Mm-hmm. And it was specifically water, like not soda. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a medical reason for that. I have my doubts. Okay. And only if you're stationary. So we we actually asked a couple of cast members that, and they confirmed it. Mm-hmm. I'm not entirely sure that's a rule rule. Okay. I did see a lot of relaxed 
concept around what the term six feet means, mm-hmm. which is sort of interesting. Like, and I was I was talking to we had a whole team in in the park on Saturday at the Magic Kingdom testing touring plans, and mm-hmm. you know I was standing in line with them while we were doing this. And so the question we we asked is this: you know, so in a given day, you know, Magic Kingdom's got like thirty two, thirty five thousand people in it, something like that, mm-hmm. right? And there are a certain number of people who, for whatever reason, will not adhere to the six-foot guidelines, mm-hmm. right? Some of them, a certain percentage of them, don't understand it mm-hmm. for whatever reason, right? And, and the, the, the joke I made to my sister was, you know, there's 35,000 people in Magic Kingdom. I'm pretty sure I'm not the dumb one. <laughs> but, but, but someone, if you rank them all from one to 35,000, mm-hmm. somebody has to be the dumbest person in the Magic Kingdom, mm-hmm. right? But what does Disney do in that case? Because you, you, you figure no matter what, mm-hmm. with that many people, there's some number who just don't understand what they're supposed to do. If you think about the, prob- the problem that Disney fix- faces, like how does, if that doesn't work, if a sticker on the ground doesn't work, mm-hmm. what does Disney do in that case, right? And the second, second problem that Disney faces is of the 35,000 people, right? Mm-hmm. There's going to be some percentage who willfully ignore it, mm-hmm. who say, I know what you want me to do, but I don't believe it, mm-hmm. right? So I'm not going to do it. Disney also faces a predicament there. Like, what does Disney do there? Mm-hmm. And then the constraint around that is the guest experience for the the percentage of people who actually do it. Like, my my first impulse was, you know what we need here is cattle shoots, <laughs> where one door opens up when you can move it. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking more like ski gates, you know, mm-hmm. like the, you know, when you're watching the Olympics, like in the, the little gate opens up to allow the skiers to go and start down. Like, we just need those every six feet, mm-hmm. right? That's like the perfect world. But obviously, that's a terrible guest experience, and, and it would it would be dehumanizing and just just bad for a number of reasons. But I'm like, how would you do that? And maybe this is the best Disney can do. We are also dealing with, in theory, the light at the end of the tunnel, and there's just a certain attitude at Disney at this point. You know, you were saying, for example, about the water thing. It's just sort of like, yeah. you know, water versus soda. It's like, just let this slide. You know, remember, yeah. people are paying thousands of dollars to get down here. And remember, when people have a good time, they tell three people. When people have a bad time, yeah. they tell seven people. And we, yeah. we don't want people going home and evangelizing about the terrible time they had at Disney. So it's just sort of like, right. you know. And I think, I think your point... I mean, if you look at the vaccination rates in the United States, right, most of the vulnerable population has been vaccinated. I got my vaccine um, last Thursday. And I got to say, by the way, Mm -hmm. Florida had their act together on this one. So I went to the Orange County Convention Center. Like I signed up as soon as I could. Only took me, and I'm not joking, 250 attempts on the website to get get an appointment. Not not kidding. Okay. But once I got there, Mm -hmm. like smooth as silk, Mm -hmm. like get in a line with your car, check your ID. They did the injection. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel a thing. The Bill Gates microchip uh, activated immediately. They were able to port my number over. I'm actually talking to you now through the molars in my teeth. No, but but, but seriously, it's a uh, yeah, yeah. Seriously, it was. It could not have gone better. Like I felt no pain, no nothing. Okay. So next vaccine comes up in three weeks. Yeah. F- other than the website thing, the state of Florida has their act together mm-hmm. in Orange County. If anybody lives in Orange County or can get to Orange County, go go do it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely painless. Okay. So everybody that on my team has a vaccine, at least one vaccine now. Mm-hmm. Most people are vaccinated, like people in the parks. Mm-hmm. So you know, if I saw somebody drinking water, well, I personally didn't. You know, I wasn't scared. Mm-hmm. Over it because it's all risk and reward, right? Mm-hmm. But there are people at, at other at both ends of the spectrum on that, right? Oh, sure. So sure, sure. yeah, it was just more it was more interesting to me. Like if you're Disney, how do you solve this problem? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's what I was that's what I was thinking about. So anyway, other interesting things in the park. So on last week's show, Jim, we said that Disney was getting into the quest game business, mm-hmm. and apparently, find your way into Small World <laughs> is their field test of this because the entrance to Small World has moved. Yet again, now it's in the middle of the uh, of the the facade for the for the for the attraction. Wow! When yeah, when did that happen? Sometime in the last couple of weeks, I guess. Mm-hmm. And honestly, God, I think the reason they did this was mm-hmm. um, most of the line is or much of the line is outside now, mm-hmm. and it's. I mean, it was ninety one degrees in sat- on Saturday in, in the Magic Kingdom. It was hot. Okay, right. And I think they moved the entrance closer to the middle of the front of the attraction because that's where the line begins mm-hmm. outside. And they were just trying to make that part shorter. 
Um, right. So by by moving the entrance, you could use a little bit more indoor space for the queue mm-hmm. and have to use a little bit less outdoor space. So I think that was a guest concern there. So yeah, so good 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 for them on doing it. Okay. Speaking of indoor space, just want to acknowledge I was watching uh, the videos online earlier this week of how they basically turned Columbia Harbor House into the over. I walked through it. it yeah. Like, you know. I walked in. I'm like, can I get like a shrimp thing <laughs> in here? Is it, am I not, not going to be here long enough yeah. for this? But to do that but and to also do much the same thing with Monster Inc. Laugh Floor and make that. Did that as well. Yeah. yeah go for buzz. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, like we, and, and of course, when you're going through the line, you have to tell jokes, mm-hmm. right? As you're going through it. There yeah. you go. So just interesting to see as we get to these heavier periods of time how they were accommodating you know especially with you know florida weather behaving like florida weather yeah the first time i saw the queue for peter pan like i saw the line the stanchions around columbia harbor and for a brief shining moment mm-hmm. i thought yes hummus hummus sandwich in my future mm-hmm. right like okay columbia harbor is mm-hmm. back and then i saw a cast member standing there with a sandwich board saying peter pan and they actually had taken a piece of paper mm-hmm. And posted twenty minutes from this point hmm. on it as the sign, and it was it was actually like nineteen and change, so they got it right. Okay, but yeah, I was like, okay, this is this is gonna be super interesting. So even though I had already been on Peter Pan earlier in the day when the line wasn't there, mm-hmm. I got back in literally just to walk through Columbia Harbor House mm-hmm. and see how it's doing. So they um they're using digital display menus now, and those were turned off. Mm-hmm. But you know, the decor was there, and it was just it was just fun to be back in Columbia Harbor House. Cool, cool. The other thing that I did, Jim, uh, mm-hmm. last night I went to Epcot and I've been spending almost no time in Epcot recently mm-hmm. because I'm working on GPS navigation mm-hmm. for the app and I'm doing that in the Magic Kingdom because the Magic Kingdom has the most sort of interesting routes mm-hmm. to go on. And I had not seen the harmonious barges in person in World Showcase Lagoon. And a couple of times that I went to uh, to Epcot before this, mm-hmm. I just stayed in Future World. I needed to go in and check something, and and, and then I left. Mm-hmm. Jim, these things are are hideous. It is almost impossible for me to overstate how big these barges look in person. They block the view of all of the pavilions and all of the scenery behind them. It's from the ground level, I know BioReconstruct does a great job of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. doing aerial photos. Absolutely. From the ground, mm-hmm. they are monstrous. And, you know, I know we've heard talk about how Disney's going to do water fountains during the day to supposedly hide them. And I, I looked at those, Jim, and I thought the size of the water pumps that you would need mm-hmm. to pump out that much water. I mean, you remember in the Bible when Moses <laughs> parted the Red Sea? This... This would be that times four. Like, first of all, I'd like, I, I'm not joking. I seriously doubt that Epcot can get that much electricity mm-hmm. into World Showcase Lagoon to power those pumps. And even if they could, it would sound like jet engine turbines mm-hmm. everywhere. Like, I just don't think it's possible to hide them. They have, in fact, done some testing during. I saw the tests. Yeah, it was. Oh. It was. Like, you know those rotating sprinklers that your parents used to put on the lawn. Yeah, they kind of go back and forth. And it was like that. It was, and that coupled with the fact that for the first time ever, they did it on a windy day in Florida, and they had people stand over. I want to say in the UK and Canada. And there was definitely a water mist headed over in that direction. Yeah. So it's like, oh crap! You know now. Well, it, the problem with the wind is it disperses the water. There we go. Uh, screen, which is supposed to hide the thing. So yeah. as long as it's not windy in Florida, which I'm sure that never happens. Oh, no, not at all. It, so, it'll be fine. Yeah. And so, so here were my questions as I was walking around. Mm-hmm. Who decided to blight the landscape with these things for 12 hours a day for a 15 minute show? That's going to run once a night. Like, like who in Imagineering said, this is an acceptable trade-off? What was the thinking there? So my other thing was like, mm-hmm. does anyone in Imagineering actually think these things look good? Does someone, is someone willing to argue that the barges have some sort of visual appeal or some sort of aesthetic quality that adds to the overall guest experience in World Showcase? And if so, what is that? Like, what were they, what do they think of there? Okay. Right? After all of the years of development that were done on Rivers of Light, and remember the lovely Lotuses. And, and you, can, yeah, you can say whatever you want about the, mm-hmm. the execution mm-hmm. of Rivers of Light. Yeah. 
it had an aesthetic quality. It did. It did. But okay, you know, right. but the, we're not we're not debating that. Okay. Problem was they discovered the hard way that they made it pretty but not easy to operate. And so what ended up happening to the team that was working on Harmonious is they then buried the needle in the exact operation, you know, the different direction. Opposite direction. That this this show will definitely be operational, that, you know, they will work from day one. But from an aesthetics (laughs) point of view, it's like that was not a priority. It was the effect of this thing has to work for tens of thousands of people who stand around World Trade Lagoon every night, come rain, come shine. So that's what you're looking at. That was the decision-making process. Let's not have another Rivers of Light. I understand the need to make things work, Mm -hmm. right? I am not convinced yet Mm -hmm. that there was no alternative design for this. So, uh, so maybe Jim, you, you and I know a lot of Imagineers listen to this show, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So if you're an Imagineer listening to this show and you actually worked on these things and you feel strongly that I'm being harsh about this, email me and we will talk about it privately because I want to know what your design inspiration was for this and why you thought it fit into World Showcase. Like what were you going for? So for example, if you say, look, Len, the dome shape of the barges came from Peter Barron's AEG turbine factory in 1909, Berlin. Like I, I could squint my eyes and see that, right? I'd want to know why you thought the early 20th century Verkman school of design was right for all of World Shakespeare's Lagoon, but we can have a rational discussion about that, right? And I will keep it confidential. And by the way, to the Disney PR team who's going, yeah, it was totally the Verkman school that inspired us. Um, Verkman is spelled with a W because it's German. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay Delicately so, stepping around that. Okay. <laughs> continue on. So so the thing that it came to mind, and, and I, I, you and I were joking before the show that I was like, instead of actually looking at the barges, I actually preferred to look at the pavement mm-hmm. in World Showcase because that didn't bother me as much, which is in itself a damning statement. Mm-hmm. But like, here's what I want to say to my friends in Imagineering. And, I, and I, honest to God, I mean this sincerely. Right? It's okay to tell your peers in management no sometimes. Many of them are already thinking it, but they don't want to be the first to say it. You're not going to get fired for saying no, and some people will respect you more. And my second thing, and and I I swear to God, Mm -hmm. this is the first thing that popped into my mind after the hideous thing. Mm -hmm. I think Joe Rudy quit because he got tired of explaining to management why things like these barges are bad. Honest to God. Like that is like I am convinced 100%. Joe Rudy was like, you know what? I can't. <laughs> like, no. I'm just, I'm, I, I've done what I could here, no. and that was it. There, you know, like, there are only so many hours in the day. Is this? Am I going to have the same argument every day for the rest of my working life? And he's like, you know what? Spaceships. There we go. There we go. Anyway, mm-hmm. that's my rant for the uh, for the day. All right. So, listener questions, Jim. Here we go. Mm-hmm. Ready? All right. This is from Sarah. My family's thinking about taking advantage of virtual school and doing school in quotes for Multisian World before the end of the year. We did a trial run back in the fall, and the internet coverage at Beach Club DVC was awful. Three of us needed to be on Zoom for class or work, and the signal kept dropping. Which DVC resorts do you think have the best or most reliable internet coverage and or cell coverage in case we need to default? I'm asking about DVC because we probably want a one-bedroom in order to spread out and get work done. So, Sarah, you are in luck because I checked with some friends. And Saratoga Springs has just installed brand-new fiber cables to the buildings along with improved Wi-Fi. Like this is in the last 60 days or so. So Saratoga Springs has absolutely the latest technology. If you want, we can send somebody over and into one of the rooms and, uh, and test the internet speed. If you want, let me know. After that, I think going in order in which the buildings were built, mm-hmm. probably Grand Flow Villas has the latest technology after that. And I know they're doing lots of work now around converting the copper cable that runs into the rooms to fiber optic. Like I, I, I'm 99% sure that's happening at Port Orleans, for example, right now. Okay. Okay. The second question that Sarah has, and this one's for you, Jim, mm-hmm. do you have a best guess for when you think the star Wars galactic star cruiser will open? The official Disney page still says coming in 2021. Thanks to our, our good buddy, bio reconstruct who's been flying over. They've turned the exterior of the building over to landscape. So they are working hurriedly on hiding the structure. My problem is that I have heard the way, you know, the, the intergalactic star cruiser, it, it, they're supposed to be 
literally a shakedown cruise, several shakedown cruises with cast members who sign a non-disclosure agreement the size of a phone book. And, you know, everything's set for this this two-day cruise. But it's sort of the classic case with all theme parks. You you design the park as you think it'll work, and then you put people in it, and, oh, dear God, no, that didn't work at yeah. all. So there's at least three practice cruises with cast members. And, and my understanding is Imagineering, along with the parks and resorts folks, you know, there was going to be a three-week lag between the first cruise and the second cruise, and then two-week yeah. lag between the second and third cruise. And then finally, provided that by the third cruise, all the bugs had been removed and that all questions in regard to food service and transporting people over to the parks and that sort of thing had been answered, then they were allowed to turn it over? Yeah. More months away from this. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. All that landscaping is a really good sign, but we're still a while out. I would be eyeballing 2022. Yeah. So it's it's April right now, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And even if they can do the exterior work, I mean, not for nothing, they've got to actually come up with a dedicated route to drive guests from the Star Cruiser into Galaxy's Edge, mm -hmm. right? So and that's that's not done yet or themed or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And so that would be, that's a prerequisite mm -hmm. for opening. But beyond that, the big thing, two big things that Disney has never done mm -hmm. before is they've never built a hotel with the special effects, the kind of uh, like you're going to see mm -hmm. in the Galactic Star Cruiser. And then they've got two days worth of gameplay oh, yeah. that they've got to perfect mm -hmm. and also schedule for up to, you know, a hundred rooms worth of people mm -hmm. at a time. That's a challenge. And we haven't heard even like peep number one mm -hmm. from anyone who's even tried the first bit of those things. Right. Yeah. And I mean, building a building is, is hard. Mm -hmm. Right. But, but that's the thing that's going to take them the time because if, you know, if this thing's going to be priced like a cruise, mm -hmm. right. And have the sort of the, start date, end date thing like a cruise does. It has to be overwhelmingly good. It can't be, oh, that was interesting mm -hmm. or, you know, most of us had fun or parts of it were good, right? It's got to be, this has to be like the most immersive gameplay that we've ever seen, right? It's LARPing on a whole new level. Mm -hmm. And because if they don't, there's no way Disney's going to be able to charge a premium for it, right? And then that's that goes that goes down. So we haven't heard anything about that. And so I think we're months away. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, will this open? If this opens in 2021, it's going to be late 2020. It's not opening this summer. No. Right. No. And my sense is 2022. And that's a certain amount of frustration because, of course, as part of Walt Disney World's 50th anniversary, they wanted to be able to hype this that Disney is always moving forward. Disney's always on the cutting edge, and look at what they're now offering their guests. And the fact that yeah. right now it's like we we want to be able to walk this out during our 50th anniversary. So you guys need yeah. to deliver. Well, they've got you know they've got 18 months for the the 50th anniversary. I mean, it'll it'll, it'll get done mm -hmm. during the the 50th anniversary celebration. I think the other concern that Disney's got to look at is. The technology that they chose for this, mm -hmm. that they had to standardize on, they probably picked in 2019. Yeah. Everything's going to open three years later, mm -hmm. right? So the technology, especially around things like graphics processing, or if you look at what, uh, what Apple's coming out with, with their uh, augmented reality headsets later on this year, they're already one technology, if not two technology generations behind. Yeah. Right. And well, again, the, the comparison when you, you talk with folks in Imagineering, this is the cruise experience right down to the construction that you you, oh, yeah, no, you, yeah, you yeah. start yeah. building in one economy and you deliver in another. Exactly. And certainly, again, the, the pandemic has made this challenging as well. So um, Yeah, true. Okay. But I mean, they've got a number of things that they got to face. Yep. So. Mm -hmm. All right. Here's a, uh, here's a question from uh, Ben. It's actually more of a story. Mm -hmm. Listening to this week's Disney Dish, you mentioned the torque on the parking lot trams. I can tell you firsthand how powerful those machines are. I was a college program cast member in the spring of 2002 and worked at the TTC. I spent time mostly working in the evenings, shuttling folks to their cars rather than directing and parking cars. Out in the parking lot with no one on the tram or the rear platform, we could do what we were told specifically not to do, and that is slam the accelerator down to get the tram to do a wheelie. If we rapidly pressed the gas, you would achieve a bounce that rivals any electronic bull ride you might encounter. The bounce on the trams was so high that you could get it caught on one of the parking lot poles 
lining the parking lots. And that's exactly what happened to the tram in the attached photo <laughs> at Disney's Animal Kingdom. And Ben sent us a photo. He also said the cast member who did this was quickly promoted to guest oh. after this stunt. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And there's a, uh, there's a photo of a tram whose front is now stuck on one of those concrete and metal poles. Oh, dear. Okay. Okay. How do you get that? How do you get that off? Uh, <laughs> get more cast members to lift. Like, what do you? You know, you call your guys in facilities, and they go get a very heavy tractor. Yeah, or train or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Here's a uh, here's a note from our friend Cameron. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, the reference in the Disney survey last week to camp. Remember, we were talking about uh, interactive quests. Mm-hmm. Uh, the survey to camp is an experiential retail concept for kids and families. They have a few around New York City particularly one at Hudson Yards. It's worth checking out the next time you're back in the city. The better version is at Fifth Avenue between 16th and 17th Streets because you enter through a pull-away bookcase. And then Cameron put in parentheses, a la put the candle back. <laughs> you can tell Disney was in, was an inspiration mm-hmm. for the retail concept. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Cameron layered in like three funny things into, into that four-sentence <laughs> four email. That was great. That's great. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, and then finally, Stephen writes in with this. Uh, my question revolves around Disney's rights under the Special Improvement District, uh, known as Reedy Creek, mm-hmm. and vaccine passports. The article that I attach mentions Florida's governor wanting to ban the use of other states' vaccine passports for public and private use in the state. My question is with Disney's Reedy Creek, can Disney mandate vaccine passports while the rest of Florida has it banned? So I actually have to check on the Reedy Creek Improvement District Charter. I, I didn't have time to uh, to read it today. And I originally thought that Ron DeSantis couldn't do this because of Article 1, Section 8 of the Commerce Clause, mm-hmm. uh, which is the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, which would have prevented him from doing it. But I asked around, and apparently I'm wrong about that. Mm-hmm. But in asking around, I was told uh, there would almost certainly be other challenges in court using a variety of other laws. So it's not clear that a vac- vaccine passport ban would succeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is also one of these private sector versus public sector situations. Right. And again, I think the issue you touched on with the court and also private sector versus public sector. I noticed that we've gone through this entire show and haven't yet talked about the news coming out of Disneyland, the expansion plan or Disney forward. That's right. And I was I was on the fence about this, but let's so let's finish up this question. OK, so the question is, is we don't know, but it, it's like if we had to bet, we'd bet that it. It's not enforceable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I think for now, you know, but again, this is, this is an evolving situation, as is uh, the Disney Forward thing. All right. So Disney Forward, originally when it was presented, so these, this news broke mm-hmm. all of a sudden last Friday yeah. after we had released mm-hmm. or recorded last week's show. Yep. And in the Disneyland expansion plans, mm-hmm. it looks pretty ambitious, mm-hmm. right? The idea is that they would take a huge chunk of land and build extensions theme park extensions for both Disneyland and DCA, as well as further develop some of the hotel mm-hmm. and retail areas around, and parking areas around Disneyland. Mm-hmm. But Jim, in reading about that more, mm-hmm. there were some differences, right? Or there were some things to, things to note, right? Yeah. What this is all about is basically unwinding the earlier resort development plan that the Walt Disney Company cut with the city of Anaheim and Orange County uh, with, of course, a component from the state of California that dealt with the highways and that sort of thing. Right. They'd agreed to zoning mm-hmm. ordinances yes. or zoning classifications mm-hmm. for certain parts of the property. This is going to be a hotel. This is going to be retail. Yes. This is going to be a park. And the areas that people particularly need to focus on are, are those that were set aside Previously for transportation, we're talking specifically the Simba and Friends parking lot, the Toy Story parking lot. These are for transportation. These are not for mixed use. And Disney is looking at this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And I, I hate to say that the pandemic was an opportunity, but frankly, if you look at the last five years of Disney's relationship with, with Anaheim, the the fight between the city and Disney. Contentious is the word there you're looking for. The, the four-star hotel that they wanted to build that Disney backed away from because Anaheim didn't want to give them the tax credit. Likewise, you know, if you remember that giant parking structure that they were going to build down by the five to service folks coming up from like San Diego, that also right. got shut down. 
Disney as a corporation is looking at how frankly terrified Anaheim and Orange County officials are after a year of Disneyland being closed. Uh And it's just, it's a whole notion of we have the opportunity for this one window of time to run the table. Yeah. Get what we want for the next 20 years. That's it. Exactly. And, and that's one of the reasons why you're seeing things, the effect of one of the things of this presentation was the effect of we will use no public money. But right now, they are laser-focused on those parking lots and getting the resort development plan from the 1990s that that this is all about. It's getting that language rewritten in such a way that then allows Disney to develop the parking lots. As mixed use. As mixed use. They want to change the designation of that property from parking or transportation to mixed use so they can build anything they want. Yeah. So I I apologize to everybody who's been doing the Zapruder film with the concept art, the effect of, you know, I see Wakanda, you know, I see Frozen. It's like we are so far away from things like that being decided. You know, the only thing I've gotten out of friends at Imagineering in talking about this is to the effect of the one thing we can probably count on with this project is that both Disneyland Park and Disney's California Adventure will grow by a third each. Right. And this would be sort of a um, almost entirely physically separate land connected by some sort of walkway. There we go. There we go. Right. All right. The other thing, frankly, people need to be aware of looking at, you know, for example, this amazing piece of concept art. This is at full build out, which could be as far as 10 years out. Yeah, 10 years. Yeah. It's Disney saying this is what we could do. Yep. Not what we will do mm-hmm. if you if you gave us this, granted us this rezoning. And that's entirely what's going on here. For the next six months, this will all be behind closed doors, negotiating with the city of Anaheim, Orange County officials, likewise meeting with folks at the state and transportation folks. And then at some point, should they come to terms, should they get the, the language changed in the 1990, early 1990s resort development plan, then this will move forward. You mentioned that, that Disney thinks they have a sort of a once-in-a-generation opportunity here because mm-hmm. of the crisis. But conversely, mm-hmm. Anaheim has some leverage as well because Disneyland has already said, mm-hmm. we are going to de-emphasize our annual pass holders, mm-hmm. which means... Disneyland now needs to build things mm-hmm. that are going to attract non-locals. Yep. And in order to do that, they have to they have to build. Mm-hmm. So Anaheim knows that in order for Disney as a company mm-hmm. to achieve their goals with Disneyland, and I think their goals include turning it into a multi-day resort mm-hmm. that basically has the same mix of visitors mm-hmm. that Orlando has, mm-hmm. right? Or close to it, yep. right? In order to do that, they're going to have to expand, right? Therefore, Anaheim is not completely powerless in this. They can no. dictate no. what can and can't be done, right? So it's not it's not as uneven a, uh, a debate as you would think. No, no, it's not. But at the same time, I mean, face it, Anaheim's main goal is to make sure that the Disneyland Resort does not become a walled city, that the people who right. come here do get out to the restaurants and the shops along Harbor and Catella. That is the concern with the development of one component of this is supposed to throw you know something down in the Toy Story parking lot across from the Orange County Convention Center. And it's yeah it's that's actually that's a great point you bring up because if you think about how Disney presented the expansion plans, mm-hmm. it was only the Disney property. Like they could have they would have been, I think, a little bit better off mm-hmm. if they had shown the existing businesses around D- Disneyland, but sort of like blurred them out. Mm-hmm. Like we know they're there. Mm-hmm. It's just not the emphasis here. Instead it was just Blank canvas yeah. for everything outside of a uh, so that, that's actually, that's actually a yeah. pretty yeah. observant tip there, Jim. You should uh, you should eh. you should email whoever's going to uh, <laughs> going to do version two here to say you know what let's put the let's put the hojo on the map yeah. too just yeah. just so everyone knows what we're talking about. Yeah. Good catch, by the way, for the you know whoever caught the Wakanda yeah, giant yeah. panther mountain thing. But yeah, we are miles away from yeah. you know the f- physically deciding what goes into what you know at this point. Yeah. And by the time this thing gets built, there will be so much different IP on the table 
Though that said, that it really is not a coincidence that when Disney talks about what they're going to do potentially with this property, that they point to the Fantasy Springs project for Tokyo Disney Seas, which, by the way, I don't, oh, know, yeah. I don't know if you saw, just got its opening pushed off to 2023. Yeah, we can talk about that on uh, next week's show. I, um, I What I didn't see in the Disneyland expansion plans was any mention of the town of Westview. <laughs> From WandaVision? Because I would totally visit that. Like, I think if Disney really wanted to, like, to just to do something, they would redo Main Street mm-hmm. one for, like, you know, Halloween. <laughs> just do a, a just do an, an overlay of Westview. Uh, okay. It's actually not a terrible idea. Let no, me think about that no, a little bit. No, no, just in fact, again, I just, I, I know I say this far too often, the check goes to. <laughs> Let's, let's think about that. That mm. might be possible. Okay. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim tells us how Rod Serling and the Twilight Zone ended up as the theme for Disney's Tower of Terror. So last week when we left off, Michael Eisner had brought in Mel Brooks to work on a theme for a haunted hotel for Disney's Hollywood Studios. And... Going back and forth with that, eventually they decided to part ways and Eisner decided that he was tired of dealing with living geniuses. Yep. Yep. But Mel's dalliance with the Imagineers didn't have something that paid off in the park. And do you remember it it went by two titles? It was either Mickey's Audition or Mickey's Big Break, the film. Where where was it shown? In the studios? Summer of 91, it was at the studios. This was when they were reconfiguring the tour and, you know, that sort of thing. So they needed a quick attraction to put in there. So Rob Minkoff, the co-director of The Lion King, actually directed this live-action animated thing. Then, for a lot of years, it was over at the Kingdom, first in the, the Main Street Cinema, starting in 94, and then it was in the Town Hall Exhibition Hall for in 98. It, it finally sort of disappeared overnight with uh, when the Millennium Celebration came about. I don't remember this. What style was it done in? Was it... Um Pie-eyed Mickey or was it modern Mickey at the time? Well, that's the really cool gimmick of the film. It's totally seen from Mickey's point of view. You you get to see Mickey's three-fingered hands with the gloves come in, but everything is from his perspective. So it actually starts off in his office at Disney, and it's it's this celebrity-filled film. I mean, for example, his secretary comes into the room with a pile of scripts, and as she drops them on Mickey's desk, you see it's Angela Lansbury. And <laughs> she then reminds him about a, a meeting which makes Mickey think back to his his early days in the company Steamboat Willie. And then suddenly you see him arriving in Hollywood and they shot it on Hollywood Boulevard at the studios right after it opened. The park has never looked better. And then everybody Mickey deals with is a celebrity. So at one point, a little girl comes up, Mommy, who's that? And the mommy leans in, and it's Carol Kane from <laughs> get her, The Princess Bride. And it's like, oh, it's a three-foot-tall mouse. Come along, dear. But eventually, Mickey ends up at Disney Studios. He's in the line of actors who are auditioning for Steamboat Willie. And the door opens, and who comes through? He's got a beret. He's got jodhpurs. He's got a megaphone. He's got a, a riding crop. It's Mel Brooks, the director. And he comes down the line of actors and walks by Mickey and then comes back and it's like he's a mouse <laughs> I haven't seen this oh it's 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 absolutely wonderful it's just you know he's all right I found it on YouTube it's um so the thing to look for is Mickey's big break there we aka go. Mickey's audition 1992 yep. yep it's worth it alone because again the camera crew for example that the guy behind the camera is Jonathan Winters the guy who's doing <laughs> The microphone is Dom DeLuise. And and what ends up happening as they, they, you, you look on the stage and there they've recreated the entire Steamboat Willie Steamboat. Mickey's on board. There's a horrible accident. The set collapses. And in great, true Mel Brooks fashion, he looks at the disaster and peeks the, mic, uh, the microphone up to him and says, get me another mouse. <laughs> but the, the reason that Disney fans love this thing so much is that it's at this point who walks into the shot but Roy E. Disney playing Walt. Oh, really? He shakes hands with Mickey and it's like offers him a job and it's witty, it's funny. And again, it disappeared starting in 99 or thereabout after the millennium celebration and has since, you know, only bubbles up occasionally. 
on YouTube before Disney Legal jumps in and slaps it down. But anyway, I just wanted to make sure because so many people enjoy Mel's work in this thing that he did, in fact, do something for the parks. It just okay. it's so rarely seen these days. Uh, enough about Mickey's Big Break. We were talking about Twilight Zone, Tower of Terror. Eisner was tired of dealing with living geniuses. He wanted to you know, work with somebody who would be a less arg- argumentative. So look to the late Rod Serling. And, and again, with the notion of snagging the theme park rights to Twilight Zone, which had run for five seasons on CBS from October 59 through June of 64. Is that as long as it ran, that was it? That was it. That was it. The, wow. the, the first okay. iteration. I remember there was also the movie in 83 with uh, Dan Aykroyd and Albert Brooks and the like. Right. But yeah, the rights were owned by CBS and Carol Serling, Rod's widow. Now, right. Disney had a couple of fallback positions if they weren't able to get CBS and Carol to surrender to theme park rights. Among the ideas that they had in their back pocket was to go with an Outer Limits theme. That was a sort so, of a... Tw- sort of like the, yeah, the take on... Uh, yeah, a Twilight, Twilight Zone, Zone light, for, for lack of right, a better room. Sure. That ran on ABC for two seasons from 63 through 65. And the other one was Stephen King. Ooh, could you imagine uh, Sunset Boulevard as like the stand? That was, you know, <laughs> what they were looking to do. The idea that you'd be in an attraction where you'd run into Pennywise the Clown, you'd run into Cujo, you'd run into Randall Flagg. Only problem with this is that Universal already had sort of a handshake deal going with King. They were working on a trackless ride experience that was out of its world. But Disney basically approached King through back channels and said, look, if things don't work, work out for Universal, we would love to have a conversation with you. And the conversation continued. And, and King and Disney, once they bought ABC, actually did a number of things together. I don't know if you remembered the 1999 Storm of the Century or 2002's Rose Red. Or King actually even wrote a 13-episode series for ABC called Kingdom Hospital. no. I mean, Laurel's a big Stephen King fan, so she would probably recognize all of that, but not me. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, okay. Back to Twilight Zone, Tower of Terror. Go to Disney. CBS and Sterling were willing to sign over the theme park rights. And Carol particularly wanted to do anything to elevate the brand because what Disney or CBS didn't know at the time is she'd been out in the garage and actually found in a trunk two unproduced Twilight Zone scripts that she then went to CBS and said, hey, they're building the ride and, you know, that this is going to raise the awareness of Twilight Zone. And would you be interested in turning these two scripts into, say, a TV movie? And if Twilight Zone Tower of Terror hadn't fallen behind schedule, it was supposed to open in the spring of 94. And Mm -hmm. that same May was when Twilight Zone, Rod Serling's Lost Classics actually aired on CBS. They took these two scripts and made a full-length movie. In fact, I think James Earl Jones is in it. Oh, they could have done a twofer. That would have been pretty smart. Carol did do a twofer. She got two checks. So, very oh, bright woman. Good for her. So, back to the theme park right now. Michael Sprout, the writer from WDI in spring of 94, talked about, okay, what we tried to do was recreate the look and the feel of the Twilight Zone, the tone, the atmosphere, everything was meant to make people feel as if they'd actually stepped into an episode, that they what they were about to experience, what it was like to go into the Twilight Zone. Disney's doing the research, and it turns out that there's a whole segment of the public that loves the Twilight Zone, but they're oh, older because yeah. yeah. this show aired 35 years ago. And so the Imagineers go through all 156 episodes and in the end, when they, they bring focus groups and that sort of thing, it's like, what do you remember up the Twilight Zone? Well, I remember the opening. And so it's like, you were about to step into another dimension, a dimension not right. only of sight and sound, but of mind, a journey into the wondrous land of imagination, next stop, the Twilight Zone. So this is interesting. Do you think, like, I'm going to have to ask Hannah this, because mm-hmm. she's 22, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask her if she understands what the Twilight Zone is. I think we all understand it as a vague concept, mm-hmm. like something spooky. Yep. But... For that matter, we could ask the same question, like, of any 22-year-old, you know who Aerosmith is? Well, no, no, that's it exactly. In the end, you're about to enter another dimension became the thing that the Imagineers grabbed onto. So we have to do something with this ride vehicle that sort of shocks people, rattles them a little bit. And that meant, sadly, that the freefall ride system from Six Flag Magic Mountain, which, you know, again, you can remember, the Imagineers just, you know, saw it in 82 and all this time for 12 years have been focusing on, we need to do something like that for the parks. And this, this is the point they realized, that's not going to work. 
<laughs> so we need something bigger. All right, great. You can't tell a story with something that just drops you straight down. And right. so we now talk with Eric Jacobson, the, the executive designer of Imagineering. He says, look, available systems didn't meet Disney's standards of capacity. Remember when you have a ride vehicle that only holds four people. And <laughs> I think we had a, a, a listener chime in and was talking about the one in Texas that I guess they could do six carriages on the vehicle at, or the ride system at any one time. But you're the one who figured out that maximum, this was a three or 400 people an hour. Yeah. I mean, it's basically a water slide and Tower of Terror normally is around just under 1500 people an hour. So they needed, they needed to multiply by four. That's it. Exactly. So Jacobson was like, our idea for this attraction also kept changing. So we decided to let the concept drive the ride system, not vice versa. All right. So okay. Dave Spencer, uh, who's in charge of WDS R&D department, uh, goes on to say, the free-for-all idea just didn't work for Tower of Terror themed attraction. Too many story ideas, too many plot points we were trying to get across. We needed more control of the guest's overall ride experience than a free-for-all system was going to give us. So we had a brainstorming system that included ride and show engineers Dave Fink and Brand Farron to find out what was feasible, and that's when the idea of using an elevator to power Tower of Terror was first proposed. So Mark Sumner, the representative of Disney Parks, now begins reaching out to various elevator manufacturers. See, <laughs> Hello, Otis Elevator Company. <laughs> I need an elevator that does this. Hello? Hello? <laughs> See, that's it exactly. That, Hello? The problem was that elevator manufacturers always tried to reduce the bumps and sensations you feel as you go up and down. But when it came to the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror, we wanted to put everything back in that they, they spent decades taking out. Right. And so finally, an unnamed elevator company that begins with O, ends with S, agreed to take part in the T Tower of Terror project, but their name would never be seen by never a member of the public. You can't even use cast members named Otis on this ride. And in fact, what's so funny is if you get a hold of the paperwork for this project, all right, they did, you can't even find the word elevator, all right? In fact, the, yeah. the, we've talked about this. The phrase they use is physical vertical vehicle conveyance system, the good old PVVCS. Yes, yes, yes. Let's get on the PVVCS <laughs> and, uh, and, and go to the next floor. Okay. Well, uh, Lane Akiyama, the, the show producer on, on the original Tower of Terror, it said, it's, it was okay for Otis to do this because technically the Tower of Terror isn't an elevator. Elevators are used to transport people from blood floor at reasonable speeds, whereas our physical vertical vehicle conveyance system drops about 100 feet in a matter of seconds. So you've got your physical vertical vehicle conveyance system drops its loads of 21 guests with incredible precision, but that's because of the massive motors built by this unnamed company. So, so that's, that's what I remember about the, uh, the opening of this, like the backstage talk was about the size of the electric motors that generate this lift. Because I think, didn't Eisner say at one point, mm -hmm. the elevator goes down faster than gravity? Like it actually 39 miles an hour. Yeah, it's faster yeah. than gravity. But they're 12 feet tall, 7 feet wide, 35 feet long. They each weigh 132,000 pounds and are designed, Len, to safely operate for 35 years. Mm -hmm. Now, Len, Tower of Terror opens at Disney Hollywood Studios in 1994. Now, if we add 35 years to 1994, where does that put us at the end of this decade? 2029. There we go. Could you imagine the maintenance? Because they, they probably built the building around the elevators. Totally. Absolutely. <laughs> Gonna cut a hole in the roof and get a crane. <laughs> Talk about oh, no, not crane. Gi one of those giant Soviet helicopters, <laughs> Jim. <laughs> That's what they need to do here. Make a spectacle out of this. Look, there are six of these things in the Florida version. Uh, four, four of which might be running at any given time. <laughs> <laughs> but four for the, the the actual lift shafts at the back of the building, and then two for the drop shafts that we see when we stand in front of the building. So just want folks to take that into consideration toward the end of this decade, because I'm told it will be between the fact that they basically have to take the top third of the attraction off to get access to these things, that this thing will be down for, for a full year. Holy cow. At least. But anyway, when we started this series low these many weeks ago, we were talking about 
this thing is programmable. And the beauty of these six engines and how ridiculously powerful they are is that with a few clicks of a key, you can make this thing do all manner of things. And so Tower of Terror was only open two years. And by 1996, they had gone from one drop sequence to two, promoting that as twice the fright. Three years after that, we saw Tower of Terror introduce a triple drop cycle. So it's interesting that Disney is willing to do this because when you add drops, you Mm -hmm. lengthen the ride and you decrease capacity. Yeah, but that's the thing with a thrill ride. Well, we've been on that before. You know, we've done that. Right. Oh, yeah, no, they have to do it. I get it, yeah. Yeah. So 2003, they had four different drop patterns they could use. This was the time that they began randomizing it. For the 10th anniversary of the attraction, they went with randomized drops as well as new Twilight Zone-themed imagery. So now to sort of bring this story to a close, there has been a question ever since Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout opened at DCA in May of 2017 about whether or not Disney's Hollywood Studios version of the same attraction will get a retheming. Now, Disney still has to send a check to CBS and now the family of Rod Serling. We lost Carol Serling uh, back in January of last year uh, at the age of 90. Also, we, we have to face facts that Twilight Zone is just not as popular as it once was. Uh, February of this year, uh, Jordan Peele's Twilight Zone uh, reboot, which aired on CBS All Access, now Paramount Plus, was canceled just after two seasons by that streaming service. And will Twilight Zone Tower of Terror at Disney Hollywood be rethemed around Guardians of the Galaxy? Len, I'm going to say no, because Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind is just up the street. And that's due to open in, in 2022. But you mentioned Joe Rohde. Joe, right. right after he left Disney, did an interview. And somebody asked him about, about working on Twilight Zone, Tower of Terror re-theme for DCA. And he said, well, you know, we didn't just look at Guardians of the Galaxy. We, we worked up a version, a re-theming of the attraction that was built around Doctor Strange. Oh, with the building things, the building scene. In, uh, there we go. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The uh, Sanctum Sanctorum. Likewise... We worked up a retheming around Spider-Man, and face it, with the Web Slingers attraction, that's just across the street. Well, they can't they can't use Spider-Man. Though, well, no, no, in, that's it exactly. The they can't do that. Use that in Florida. So, Bumble Snuff, Creepy Snitch, it is. Yeah. If Disney ever gets tired of sending a check to CBS and and Rod Serling's family, there are options. Yeah, it's so. Doctor Strange, it is. Yeah. So, in much the same way as the five part Hitchhiker's Guide trilogy, you know, we we finally <laughs> managed to finish. increasingly and accurately named seven part Hitchhiker's there Guide. There we go. There we go. <laughs> but this was that was a this was a great little series, Jim. I learned so much. That I didn't know about. Good job on this one. Again, if we ever want to go further down this road, we can talk about the Tokyo Disney Seas version or how they changed the physical layout of the building. But yeah, for now, aren't we going in an entirely different direction with the feature for next week, Ohana? We are. The, uh, so next week's show is the history of the Ohana restaurant at Disney's Polynesian Resort. So have a big dinner of meat before you play that one, folks. All right, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including the earliest known version of Epcot's American Adventure script with real actors, music, and special effects. You can find more of Jim at JimHillMedia.com and more of me, Len, at TouringPlans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who will be performing Moss Def's New World Water and Anoni's Four Degrees on Friday, July 16th, for the Chesapeake Climate Action Network at the MECU Pavilion in beautiful Baltimore, Maryland. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and Narrator Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.